Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, sorry seems to be the hardest word as the song goes. Why do we find it so difficult to apologize? And what are some of the simple rules to a proper sorry? Can watching Seinfeld teach us the basics of economics? Well, we meet a professor and author that co-wrote a whole book on the subject, and it's far from just your old yada, yada, yada. It's the real deal. Do you dislike your signature? There is a whole industry out there willing to help you give your John Hancock some real flair. We'll look into that. Toronto Star's parliamentary correspondent Stephanie Levitz joins us to go over a very busy week already in Ottawa from grocery store CEOs on the hot seat to more revelations about China's alleged interference in Canadian federal elections. But first, it was nearly a year ago that a group of former and current gymnasts, coaches and others got together to sign an open letter demanding an end to what they say is a culture of abuse in the sport. Well, the movement started with 70 signatures. It has grown by leaps and bounds since. And Amelia Klein of Gymnasts for Change tells us all about it. And that leads us to our next guest, because there's been a widespread conversation in this country over the past year or so around the culture of amateur sport, coaching, and just how important it is when it's great and how bad it is when it's bad. And in many ways, the conversation was sparked by current and former athletes who've stepped up to share their stories and to put an end to what they say has been a long-time culture of verbal, physical, and psychological abuse. Not everywhere, but far too common. Amelia Klein was a promising young gymnast who walked away from the sport at just 13 because of that culture. But after time away, she returned, not as an athlete, but as an advocate, helping create a group called Gymnasts for Change. Uh, They are a survival-led global network of current and former gymnasts, coaches, parents, fans, and more who've come together to try to change that culture. She's also part of a new list of 23 influential Canadian women in sport to watch in 2023. And Amelia Klein joins me now. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been almost a year now, right, since that open letter, that first, that first shot, so to speak, in this, in this battle for, for change back in late March of 2022. What a year it's been for you. I, I'm, how have you seen? Have you seen real progress? Anything that you can be really proud of and positive about? Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been almost a year. It's been such a whirlwind. But, um, I mean, I think we've seen incredible movement over the last year. I mean, when we first released our open letter, we had no idea if it was going to have any support or what the reaction would be. You know, what was started as 70 signatures, we now have over 600. We've seen uh, politicians and our decision makers at the government level really starting to pay attention. Um, You know, we've testified in front of the Status of Women Committee um, and politicians are starting to pay attention and realize that we have a real problem in this country with abuse. A reminder to listeners how you got involved in advocacy, because you took some time away and then you decided to tell your story. How did that happen? I did. I I wrote a blog in 2020 when we were all stuck at home and I had a lot of time to think and I decided to share my story that way. Um, Again, not expecting anyone to really read it. It was really for my own catharsis and what ended up happening was just I I was flooded with messages from current and former gymnasts across the country saying, this happened to me too, and what can we do about it? Um, and so it was really through talking to so many survivors and realizing that there was a real 
need to start moving forward on creating some accountability and creating some change in the sport that then we ended up forming Gymnasts for Change Canada and, and moving forward the way that we have. How does, the stories are all different, I know, but there are similar there are similar similarities in all of them. Your story, I remember about injuries and so on, and just feeling like you were in a situation where you were almost being forced to put yourself in serious danger, trying to practice mm-hmm. something that you loved. And you've heard a lot of those stories since. And, and I guess it must have opened your eyes to the fact that you, you definitely weren't alone. Yeah, I when I wrote my blog, I really, I had some hope that the sport had changed over the 20 years since I had left. Um, but unfortunately, what I heard from so many survivors were stories nearly identical to mine um, and and worse. I mean, my story didn't encompass sexual abuse, but so many stories of sexual abuse also started to come out of the woodwork. Um, so it was really alarming, and it told me that progress hadn't come to the sport the way that I thought that it had, and really we needed to do something about it. What do you think? caused the where was the um i guess the question would be i mean i know how the system works it's quite a closed system and there's a lot of people who know each other within the system so it's hard to to break through with a message that people don't really want to hear necessarily but why do you think it took so long for people to gather and come together considering how widespread it seems this has been i think there's a lot of fear of retaliation and we're we're seeing that currently against survivors who come forward there's Massive pushback in the form of even lawsuits against people who come forward and and tell their truth. Um, And there's serious repercussions for people who are within the sport as well and and jeopardizing their careers for the sake of coming forward. So I think there's a lot of of serious, genuine fear there. And it really is only when one or two people start the ball rolling and they realize that I'm not alone and I'm, I'm supported that I can come forward. And so We've, I think, created a community where people feel more comfortable now coming forward. And it's also breaking the, the stigma and sort of the normalization of a lot of this abuse. I think a lot of us grew up in the sport. And so when you're so young, you don't necessarily realize that what you're experiencing is serious abuse until you're outside of that environment. And so it takes a lot of survivors a lot of time to actually come to terms with what they experienced and to realize that it was mistreatment. I started off by saying, you know, back in high school, I'd had a few teachers who had really lifted me up. And I, I was trying to imagine the impact of being crushed at that age by, by mm-hmm. in, in something that you adore, by someone you look up to. Yeah, I think it's, it's a real, what I've come to realize, there's a real grieving process that you have to go through, even as an adult, to realize that these people who you trusted with, essentially with your life in a sport like gymnastics, um, used that authority in the worst kinds of ways and robbed you of a sport that you loved, that you actually could excel at, that you were good at, that you loved so much that you would devote your life to. Um, there's a grief associated with that. And that's really hard to come to terms with. Um, even as an adult, that's something that I've had to grapple with. You once spoke about the Olympics being the dream. Now you've become an advocate. I I read something today. Congratulations on being included in that list of 23 influential Canadian women in sport. It caps off a remarkable year for you in so many ways. But you've said that being an advocate is in some ways more gratifying than a trip to the Olympics ever could be. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's such an honor to be included on a list like that. It's certainly something I never imagined would come of all of this, um, and it it really is such a team effort that we've um, we've done any of this. But I think for me, every day talking to survivors and hearing from them and hearing from them that they have found their voice because they've realized that they're not alone and they can speak out. That is so satisfying and it's really, it gets me up in the morning. It's, it's an amazing thing. And also to remember that you have coaches in your, within your teams too, because I think one of the issues that happens when these things emerge, and I remember it from the, from the American example with Larry Nasser, is that all of a sudden all coaches get painted with a, with a brush that maybe mm. some of them don't deserve, right? And that's also something to look at. Absolutely. And I think, you know, so many of the coaches that we're in contact with are amazing, wonderful, athlete-centered coaches, and they have um, the right idea when it comes to treating children like children instead of treating athletes like commodities. And um, and those are the, the types of people that we want to keep in the sport. And I think when you have such a toxic culture, it's not just toxic for the athletes, it's toxic for the people who are trying to do the right thing, who are in positions of authority as well. And so a lot of coaches have said, you know, I don't feel comfortable speaking up because I know there's going to be retaliation. And so I just try to protect my own children, my own athletes. um, But I don't feel that I can actually speak out. And I think that's where we're really trying to help change the culture is to bring accountability, to bring positive change and to allow these people who are trying to do a really good job to actually do that. Uh, Amelia, I saw that the CEO of Gymnastics Canada stepped down uh, a little while, not long ago. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of pressure on the federal sports minister to call a federal inquiry into this, or at least to a, an independent third-party judicial investigation. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done, though, I gather, just from reading through all that's been said in the last few weeks. There is a lot of work, and I think there's the temptation to view resignations from these top spots in sport as meaningful change, but I think there's so much work to be done to change the systemic culture that led to this crisis of abuse. And that's really why we're calling for a national inquiry, because it's really only through rooting out all of these issues, shining a light on the darkest corners of of the sports system, and getting a very clear understanding of how and why this happened in the first place, that we're ever going to create meaningful solutions that will actually cause change. And the third-party judicial investigation, I know the pressure's been on, um, Minister Pascal Saint-Ange, but so far, nothing yet, right? That's right. So far, um, we've heard that she remains open to that, um, but no, no green light yet. It seems like it's taken a while. Do you, know, do you have a, a, an idea of what the holdup could be? Not really. Um, no. Politics is politics, so it's it's always hard to know exactly what's going on behind the scenes um, that would cause delay. But, of course, it's, from our perspective, uh, a, a no-brainer. Um, there's obvious systemic issues of abuse in sport right across this country, and we don't see any other mechanism by which to really understand it without doing a full-scale investigation. And to be clear, this spreads well beyond gymnastics, right? Well beyond, yeah. When we when we first started this, obviously our focus was on gymnastics, and and our focus remains on supporting our survivor community in the best way that we can. But we recognize that in us coming forward, it's allowed other people in other sports to come forward with their own stories as well, and that's um, 
right from some of the smallest sports in Canada, we're hearing very similar stories to what we hear from our survivors. So it's, it's something broken within the sports system itself across all sports. Do you feel like at least starting this conversation, getting it out there into the open has helped? I think so. I think certainly um, so much of this has been allowed to continue in darkness and without um, anyone really talking about it. And this stuff um, thrives in, in secret. And I think by bringing this out into the open, by having survivors share their horror stories, it allows the general public to understand what's going on and allows our decision makers to realize there's a crisis. I don't want to put you on the spot, but our question tonight was to talk about a woman who's really lifted you up and inspired you. Is there anyone that comes to mind for you, Amelia? Oh, there's so many. Um, I'm so privileged to be working and living in a, a situation where I'm I'm around so many incredible, inspiring women. Um, you know, I I work alongside one of our co-founders for Gymnast for Change is Kim Shore, and she's been... Right such a rock and has been such a fearless advocate for these issues. Um, and truly I wouldn't be where I am without her support. Um, and so I, I give a huge shout out to her because this, none of this happens without her. Yeah. We spoke to her actually on the show last year and she's the one who introduced you and I, because she thought we should speak to you as well. Yeah. She's been, she's been great. I know. Uh, Again, Amelia, thank you so much. Congratulations on making the list. And, uh, Hopefully, this is just the beginning of a long story of change. Thank you. I certainly hope so. Well, it's Wednesday, the time we usually speak to a journalist somewhere in Canada who's doing really interesting work this week. And where else would you want to be this week but on Parliament Hill? There are simply many things going on. Today alone, we had grocery execs on the hot seat. We had a longtime Liberal MP, uh, give a very eloquent goodbye speech in the House of Commons. Mark Garneau is stepping down. Uh, We've had some new information uh, from our next guest about what's going on behind closed doors with Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives about the meeting between three Conservative MPs and a far-right German member of the European Parliament that's caused some controversy. But let's start with the China election interference story because that one, again, was front and center uh, on Parliament Hill today. The Prime Minister faced a ton of questions about alleged Chinese interference in the last two federal elections during question period today. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev accused the Liberals of a cover-up and said that Canadians deserve more transparency. Well, the Prime Minister says we all deserve to feel confident in the transparency of the process that looks into such allegations. China gave money to its preferred candidates. The Prime Minister admits... That the, that, the, that the committee reported to him on this fact. Why does he continue to state the diametric opposite of the truth in his answers in this House of Commons? Beyond uh, the partisan to and fro that we necessarily see in this House, uh, it is important to create uh, an independent, unimpeachable special rapporteur who is going to be able to oversee uh, the entire landscape around national security. And here's why this uh, took on a new tone today. Again, Global Sam Cooper has a new report out this morning, citing sources as saying that although Justin Trudeau said he was never briefed on the issue, uh, two high-level national security reports before and after the 2019 election suggest that he indeed, or the Prime Minister's office was warned that Chinese government officials were funneling money to Canadian political candidates. Well, joining me now is Stephanie Levitt. She's a parliamentary correspondent at the Toronto Star's Ottawa Bureau. Thanks so much for your time tonight. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a busy day. What a very, what a very busy day. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I was thinking about your opening music there, you know, down on the corner. And I was like, down on the hill, man. It's uh, down on the hill. Right now. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about, about what happened, because, I mean, I think there's been a lot of attention paid to this China election interference story. Um, I imagine the hope amongst the prime minister and the liberals was that announcing the two probes on Monday, the special rapporteur, would make it all go away for a little while. It hasn't. <laughs> what, what happened today? No. I mean, so today, of course, as you just alluded to, there were some new revelations about the extent to which briefings were prepared and, and apparently transmitted all the way up to the prime minister's office that are warning about some of the very same things that he has yet to sort of explain to what extent he knew or didn't know. Um, you know, the prime minister has said his chief security advisor or national security advisor, Jody Thomas, has you know made some claims that they were not ever told about specific dollar amounts being funneled to specific candidates. Uh, however, uh, you know, some of that argument has begun to be dismantled because the question it becomes, well, what about before they were candidates? What about in the nomination process, which is, you know, a bit into the weeds a little, but it, it's part of the puzzle here, right? That this isn't something that necessarily only happened in the 30 or 36 days of both of those elections. It was happening before, around, after. Um, and so what we saw today was, you know, sort of some of the prime minister's defenses here, Ben, really getting torn down by the opposition. I mean, you know, a small part, for example, of the story that was from Global Today alluded to the fact one of the documents they saw was a briefing note or a dossier, I suppose, prepared by the National Security um, Committee of Parliamentarians. This is the high level classified committee of MPs that Justin Trudeau has said ought to have access, you know, to this information. They're a great place to study it. Okay, but now they're leaking. So, yeah. you know, their documents are leaking out here. So that's not quite working. You have Pierre Polyev on his feet um, taking a very different tack in question period today, much more prosecutorial, yes or no questions, did you, did you, did you, did you? And the prime minister, not only did he not answer the questions, he tried to sort of turn the tables on Pierre Polyev. And, you know, the colleague of mine said earlier today, pressed the big, red, scary abortion button on him even, you know, somehow decided to bring wow. up abortion, which it was just not relevant in the, in the discourse of the day. It is International Women's Day. Of course, women's rights, women's health are very important issues. It just was a weird, you know, grenade to just drop into question period. Anyway, it was a bizarre day of watching the prime minister try six ways to Sunday to get himself out of this pickle. And I think he's just pickled himself a little more. Yeah, I mean, the semantics here are interesting because who said what? What they don't say is is as interesting as what they do say. And I guess the big unanswered question here has been and still is, what did the PMO know when and what did they do about it? I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah, it, it does seem pretty straightforward. You know, it's one of those things where you start, you know, as a reporter on the Hill, at some point you start second guessing yourself almost and you think, am I missing something? Is there something that I'm not hearing in his answers because he thinks he's answered them and I just don't hear that, you know, and you listen to the tape again and you listen to the tape again. You ask the question a different way and you think, why isn't he just answering the question? It is. I mean, I remember my time on the Hill, too. You'd go back and just watch things over and over again to try to decipher what it is that they hadn't said or had said or what the nuance was. You wrote a really and interesting that's article. dangerous. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to say that's really dangerous in politics and governance, right? Because any hole yeah. that you leave open, any question, any whatever, that's where the conspiracy theories come in. That's no where doubt. some of the, 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 you know, the dabbling we're getting now. And you know, the prime minister was like, you know, working in cahoots with Beijing. It was a stooge for China. I mean, 
let's let's just hold the phone, you know, but um, it's dangerous in politics. He's he has a vacuum of information and, and, here. And, you know, I, I worked in Beijing. He's he's opened he's opened himself up for this. That's it's mm-hmm. his. I mean, it's their fault. That's that's what's so strange mm-hmm. about it, because they haven't yeah. been sort of. You know, I haven't. You wrote a really interesting story today. Speaking of kind of trying to turn things around, um, you know, Pierre Polyev has been under some fire recently. Three of his MPs met with a, a woman named Christine Anderson, who's a member of the European Parliament uh, with a far right German party, well known for their anti Islamic views, their racist views, views on a bunch of other things. And he's been, you know, he sort of condemned it at the beginning. He hasn't said much about it publicly since. He was asked about it on Monday. Here's, and he, instead, he talked about Pierre Trudeau, about Pierre Trudeau, about Justin Trudeau mm-hmm. and his blackface. Here's, here's Pierre Polyev. Mm-hmm. Right now, what I'm more concerned about is the vile and racist views of the prime minister who after over half of, if I could, if I, if I could. So talk about trying to turn the tables again. It's not only the prime minister doing it, but you had some reporting today about what happened behind closed doors. Of course, uh, the conservative caucus meets on Wednesdays and, uh, Pierre Polyev struck a bit of a different tone behind closed doors with his own party because he knows how dangerous this one is for him and his party. Yeah, and I think, you know, he did what a lot of conservative MPs were telling me, Ben, that they wanted him to do, which is they weren't somewhere on the fence about how far did he have to go publicly to disparage his three MPs. I mean, one of the things that conservatives are is very hard on their own. And the minute a leader ever says something about another member of caucus, it's going to be headline news, right? It's going to fit factions in the party, divisions in the ranks. I've written these stories, right? Um, but And there probably could have been a way for Pierre Polyev to thread the needle publicly and address it. However, what a lot of MPs wanted to hear, which is what he did, which is for him to acknowledge it to their face in their meeting and say, hey, guys, no. No, this does not fly. You don't do this. You check who you're meeting with, and you you think quite carefully about who you're sitting down with because, you know, we are in a photo universe. You you will do, you know, your due diligence, and you won't make mistakes. And if you think that our party is at all aligned, at all, with this particular member of European Parliament, you're wrong, and don't do it again. And that was the upshot of it. I mean, he didn't, you know, the way I sort of framed it in the story, he didn't quite read them the riot act. There was no yelling. There was no rending of garments. There was no, you get a timeout in the corner. There was none of that. But just a very clear message is he expects better from his people. And I I think in some ways it was perceived as a bit of a warning shot. Um, You better be careful. You know, mistakes can happen. Maybe you were unaware. It cannot happen again. The question, of course, becomes when it inevitably does happen again. Um, how he chooses to deal with it then, because there was no obvious consequences for these MPs. Um, and I think that's got some feathers ruffled too. Yeah. And there won't be, right? He's made that clear. Yeah, he's made it clear. I mean, he said he's not going to kick them out of caucus. Look, for two of the, for three of the, three of the MPs, um, two of them are, are what we could, we could almost describe as like backbench backbenchers, which is to right. say that they, they didn't have much of a public profile outside of caucus. They've never had big jobs on the bench, not for many, many years, even though both of them, Dean Allison and Colin Carey, um, have been MPs for years now. Um, And they've never really quite been given any spotlight. The third MP is the one who's a bit of a quandary, and that's Leslie Lewis, who listeners might remember has run twice now for leadership of the Conservative Party. She's very, very popular in some circles of the party itself. Um, she's the first black woman to have ever run for leadership of the Conservative Party, so that's notable in its own right. And it's a bit tricky to discipline her um, as a result. But um, that being said, it's not as though she's been given a lot of star turns from Polyev to date. Uh, 
and maybe we'll see her, you know, in her seat and not on her feet for a little while as a result. Food prices have increased 25 times faster than profits. And at Loblaw, none of those profits came from higher food margins. So no matter how many times you read it on Twitter, the idea that grocers are causing food inflation is not only false, it's impossible. We at Empire are not profiting from inflation. It doesn't matter how many times you say it, write it, or tweet it. It is simply not true. The truth is we are at the end of a very long food supply chain that has economic inputs at every step and stage. That was Galen Weston, the CEO of Loblaw, and Michael Medline, the CEO of Empire Company Limited, which operates chains like Sobeys. Uh, they may, I don't think they coordinated, but they certainly sounded like they were saying the same thing. You don't have to watch the whole committee. That was the gist of it. It uh, with nothing to do with us. Ignore our big profits. Uh, Stephanie, this was an interesting one because people were really anticipating this one. And uh, the NDP certainly played it up like it was some sort of showdown between Jugmeet Singh and Galen Weston, which turned into, it was, it was a bit, I don't know. It felt a bit unfortunate the way he approached it, Jagmeet Singh, that is. But did, what did you take out of it? It just felt like same old, same old. We didn't really get a lot of answers. Yeah, I mean, I wish, you know, I wish committees ever produced a lot of answers, frankly. Um, they don't. Um, Mr. Singh uh, has made this, um, you know, a, a bit of a highlight issue for him. It is a way in which he feels, I think, he can differentiate himself from the liberals. Uh, you know, he's with his party sort of propping up the liberal government. It's been very hard for Jagmeet Singh to sort of get any political wins. And he, he and his team saw this, I think rightfully, as a potential political win for them. People are feeling the pinch at the grocery store. And that is a pinch, of course, that, that is felt more keenly by people in certain socioeconomic brackets, but I think acknowledged and seen by everyone, right? That This yeah. is definitely happening out there. The challenge, of course, becomes is that Mr. Singh is many things. Excellent in Parliament and at parliamentary procedure and at, at, at the business of the partisan back and thrust in Parliament, it is not one of his strengths. He is the leader of a party, of course. Um, prior to becoming leader, he hadn't served as an MP. He's never done this committee grind thing before. This may have, in fact, been the first time Jagmeet Singh has ever appeared at a committee, right? So there was a lot riding on this in a bit and i it seemed like a bit too much theatrics like he was stepping all over himself to get the clip as opposed to getting the answers and what canadians are looking for here is some better explanation than oh no 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 we're not profiting off the high price of chicken it's all about the lipstick you buy at the checkout counter because that's effectively their answer right that they're not their profits, which are at record highs, are, are not about the food you buy in these big grocery stores. It's about all of the other things you buy at the grocery store. Is that supposed to make us feel better as Canadians? Right? No. Like your milk is sort of <laughs> cheap and I'm marking up your cough syrup. Like, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't yeah. work, right? Pick, let's pick that apart a little bit. And the reality is profits are profits in the eyes of Canadians. And, you know, these guys can be cavalier, the grocery store CEOs, and say, no matter how many times you tweet it, it's simply not true. Well, no matter how many times you or I go to the grocery store, I'm still looking at the carton of price of milk and thinking, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, I'm still um, looking at a nine ninety nine cauliflower. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. And I just I, I I got they were they did all the they, the CEOs did everything right. They were contrite, they were calm. Uh, mm-hmm. Jugmeet Singh was really the only one who was sort of aggressive on that committee, and he kicked out one of his own MPs, who's actually a very good MP, to be there, which seemed like a bit of yeah. an unfortunate theatric uh, move as well. But I still the, the question I wanted to hear was, okay, you're making record profits, grocery prices are way up. Canadians go to the grocery stores and see this and think, what's going on what do you tell them 
And I didn't hear that question. No, I didn't. I mean, sometimes, you know, Ben, I mean, you must, you must have this feeling sometimes too in our line of work where, especially I, I have had it very recently, a lot on the Hill of these committees in particular, where you see the politicians going down one line of inquiry and you're saying to yourself, no, 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 you need to ask this. Why aren't you asking this? Like, ask this question, get this fact, yeah. get this piece of information. And Pass they don't the because, yeah. you know, it's, they don't because that's not I, – I hate to be so cynical, but it's not necessarily why they're there. They're there to, to score a point, make a point, prove a point, um, as much as they are there to get any kind of meaningful information. What is interesting, I think, if there's something that's interesting that came out of this, these hearings today, notable, is that next or at some point we are going to hear from Walmart and Costco. Yeah. And I think hearing from Walmart and Costco really changes the ante here. I mean, these are multinationals that are operating in this country. They have a different tax structure. They have a different, you know, the way they operate is kind of more protected than your average Loblaw or Sobeys, right? Um, and I think that will be very interesting in terms of what they have to say, because isn't the premise with them that, oh, no, we buy in bulk and this and that, and so we can bring prices down, but prices are going up there, too. So, yeah, and not to mention the yeah. fact that there was no meaningful discussion of some of the other things that artificially constrain prices in this country, like the supply-managed dairy sector. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, a lot was left out. I mean, so much was left out because I found, like, the MPs on that committee spent so much time propping up the before they asked. I mean, some some of them went like went on for like three minutes of their six minutes. Yeah, the preamble. In the preamble. Yeah. In the preamble. Now, I know that's par for the course for these committees, sure. but, you know, you always hope if you're going to get the three CEOs up, ask some good questions. Well, Speaking of, you know, well, like speak, Charlie yeah. Brown with the football. We always yeah. think it's going to be different. The football always gets yanked, you know? I know. Speaking of um, of changes today, there was I, I thought Mark Erno gave a very nice goodbye in, in Parliament today. Here's a bit of it. And to those sitting across from me, I want to say that I enjoyed the thrust and parry in this chamber. I've always viewed you not as enemies, but as adversaries. And there is a difference. I know that every single one of you comes here wanting to make Canada a better place. Mark Garno announced his retirement today after 15 years in politics. Of course, the first Canadian in space. I, I met him back then. I met him when he became an MP. He became transport minister, foreign affairs minister. Uh, he's 74. He talked about having made a promise to his family. I guess that one at face value seems legitimate in this case. There's a, there's a lot going on there. I mean, yeah. promise to his family, absolutely. Let's not forget, though, that um, Justin Trudeau punted Mark Garno out of cabinet. And never, you know, at the time when he was suddenly left off the roster for reasons that have never been entirely clear, there was a rumor going around that he was going to get appointed ambassador to France. Right. Um, and everyone thought, okay, well, that's all right then. You know, go, go live in Paris. It's not a slight. Yeah, go hang um, with Steph Dion in Europe. Yeah. Right? Yeah, go, go pal around. Um, I hear there's room in Buckingham Palace, you know. But uh, there's... It's always been a bit of a mystery, right? Why did Mark Garneau endure? Why did, he, why did he stick around after that? Because he's accomplished a lot in life. You know, there are politicians who go into politics and that's all they've ever done. They've never held any other kind of job. Um, the man was an astronaut. He <laughs> so was. It's not as though he hasn't accomplished much, you know? Um, and his last sort of contribution, I suppose, to the national discourse was that he was the fellow in charge of the Parliamentary Special Committee on Medical Assistance in Dying which has been one of the more you know, sensitive and fraught issues that Parliament has had before it and continues to be a fraught issue. And the expansion of the MAID regime in this country is going to be, I, I, at least I think it is, I think I hope it is, a really intense emotional debate about where we're going as a country um, as we consider all the various permutations of what medical assistance 
in death could look like. And it's just interesting to me that, you know, that committee tabled its final report just a couple of weeks ago, and now he is announcing his retirement. It's as though he has felt, okay, I have done the only other thing I had left to do in this place, I have completed, and now I'm going to go. But again, I'm going to put on my cynical hat for you, Ben. Here we have a a man who's been a a loyal liberal for a long time. He ran for leader, don't forget. Um, His boss is getting kicked on the regular right now. And Garnett came out. We're running out. We're running out of time. My my apologies. Thank you so much for doing this tonight. I appreciate. It. We'll my talk again sir. soon. I talk so much. Okay. Not at all. It's been a joy. It's International Women's Day today. We knew that at the outset of the pandemic, there were concerns that women would be disproportionately impacted in the workplace by the pandemic. There were many reasons for it. Uh, We talked about it early on, but new data suggests that for gender diversity in leadership roles in this country, it is worse than expected. The Prosperity Project's 2023 report card, they look into this, they were formed back in 2020, specifically to look at how the pandemic would impact gender diversity in leadership. This is their third annual report. It reveals an even more alarming stat. The number of women in the pipeline to corporate leadership roles has all but dried up. So not only are there you know, either a stagnant number or slightly fewer women in leadership roles, the whole system set up to get women promoted into leadership roles has kind of dried up as well. Here's what the numbers look like. The representation of women at the senior management level fell nearly 3% between 2021 and 2022. The number of women in the pipeline to senior management was down nearly 12% from a year earlier. The problem with that is that we need the diversity within the workplace. This is not just about opportunity. This is about results as well. We need people in companies with diverse leadership do better. We know that. We have an employee shortage in this country, and that applies to leadership positions as well. We need the best people in those jobs. And we need to make sure they're not being dissuaded from wanting to take those jobs either for any number of reasons. So what's behind the numbers? Joining me now joining me now is Pamela Jeffrey. She's the founder and CEO of the Prosperity Project behind the latest report card. Pamela, thank you. Thanks very much, Ben. Tell me about this annual report card because it started in 2021 and it has some specific goals. Uh, what is it that you look at and why? Sure. So the Prosperity Project's annual report card looks at the representation of women at the top of companies in BC and right across the country. And the purpose of the annual report card is to invite organizations to provide us with their data. And the data comes from the women themselves who have self-identified as being either at the board level or in an executive officer role or in the two levels beneath senior management and pipeline to senior management. And our objective is to really understand what leadership looks like in Canada at the very top of organizations right across the country. So this year we had 98 uh, organizations join us and really happy to uh, say, for example, WorkSafe BC, BCLC, Lululemon, it's roots in Vancouver, of course, They were some of the 98, and that meant that we had 17,974 women represented, and these companies deserve full marks for, you know, joining us in the annual report card, Ben, because if they weren't doing this kind of work, and we know that the data doesn't lie, if they weren't doing this, we really wouldn't understand 
what women's representation looks like in 2023. Because data can often be part of the problem. If I remember back to my days, um, you know, writing ESG annual reports, for instance, data can be part of the issue when it comes to representation or figuring out what the picture looks like across the country. You're absolutely right. We're encouraged to see more and more organizations collecting that data in accordance with strict confidentiality protocols in place. So what kind of portrait was painted this year? Because I know part of the Prosperity Project's goal was uh, was sort of an understanding that that the pandemic might set some of the thing, progress that we've seen over recent times, might set it back. And it appears that you were right. And you're seeing that in the data. We're seeing that, Ben, in the, in the data. And unfortunately, it's not a great picture. So year over year, we saw a slight increase in the women in board roles and in those top jobs as executive officers. So they represent women now, about a third of those positions. What's really alarming and what has brought a lot of attention to this year's annual report card is that we've seen a significant silent exodus of women in the top, uh, in those levels, the pipeline to senior management and in senior management roles. Meaning that with this exodus of women, it's threatening to roll back the gains that we've made over the last 30 years. For example, an 11.9 percentage point drop year over year with women now holding just four in 10 of those pipeline to senior management roles. Last year, it was almost six in 10. It's a huge drop. That is a a massive drop and such an important one for the future because, of course, organizations I've worked in, that's where that's the training ground. It's the farm system, so to speak, where uh, people learn the roles they're about to take on. And if if you it's very difficult to replace those people that you're training up into those senior management positions. Do you have an idea of what's going on? Sure. So, you know, we uh, have talked to, to many women and we believe what's going on is that, first of all, fatigue. Working mothers in particular are feeling that fatigue. It's been hard. I mean, let's face it. For the last three years, between homeschooling, aging parents, trying to balance work with all of that, it's been really challenging for women who are working moms. And so we're seeing that that exodus in part because women are putting their hands up and saying, I don't want to do this anymore and have the extra compensation in exchange for increased responsibilities. But we're also seeing women say, you know, it's important for me to stay in an organization that offers a hybrid work model. So we're hearing men and women say, we'd really like to be working with an employer who offers that hybrid work model. And so that's really key for women because 91% of women told us in the spring of 2022, in another piece of research we did, that they wanted to work remotely at least part of the time. So that's why we are supportive of a hybrid model where if the position allows it, you're in the office for two days a week or three days a week, and the other days you're at home. It highlights, it seems to me that the pandemic, like so many what it did to so many different areas is it simply highlighted an issue that existed already, which was a lack of flexibility within the workplace to allow some women, not all, but some women to succeed. You're right. It did. And uh, we see the pandemic having exacerbated a barrier, which has been historically 
the lack of gender diversity at the leadership level. We're afraid we're going to go backwards then. And that's concerning for our economy. We're talking about BC economy and every provincial economy. If we're not able to have women and men who want to be in the workforce full-time in the workforce, and we have some who are opting out, then it's going to be a hit for our economy in terms of the kind of economic growth we'd like to see. We've got to pay off these COVID bills after all. Yeah, and it also denies another generation of women from seeing women in positions of power above them, which is another issue. It's another issue, and I'm glad you raised that because for women in particular, they want to look up and see themselves, as it were, know that if they stay with an organization and they work hard, that they can succeed. And they feel that because they look up and they see other women in those senior roles and they they feel inspired, right? We all feel inspired when we see those who look like us in senior roles. I guess, where are we seeing the gaps? Are you seeing them in specific fields and specific industries? Great question, Ben. Uh, Yes, we are. So while we're seeing crown corporations lead the way versus public companies, for example, we're seeing financial services, utilities, and retail uh, lead the way in terms of industry leadership. We're continuing to see gaps in the manufacturing and mining oil and gas. You know, traditionally, that's where the gaps have been. And while the gaps are narrower than they were, there's still gaps. How do you go about remedying it? We're seeing the trend go the wrong way. It may be a blip, maybe. We don't know. I mean, we're coming sort of coming in that we're in that strange post-pandemic, not quite post-pandemic area. But where do you think we need to start to make improvements to make sure this doesn't become a downward spiral? So uh, my experience working in this area for many years has been that companies that are deliberate in setting goals do very well when it comes to leadership. So if an organization sets a goal for the representation of women, not a quota, but a goal, just like any other business goal, a goal for what uh, representation is going to look like at the top four levels by a certain year, that's a good place to start. Because starting with a goal means you do a work back plan. And in that work back plan, that's how you achieve that goal. It's setting targets for each year, for each level. And it's setting and disclosing how you're doing. For a great many organizations, they find that when they disclose and engage their employees in the conversation, but why it's good for the business, but why it's good for the customer, why it's good for performance. We know that companies that have diverse leadership teams are more likely to be more profitable than their peers. So it's uh, setting goals, and it's also about leadership at the top. It's setting the tone at the top. And if the CEO is committed, if he or she sees the value that this brings to the business and can explain the value, and the proof is in the pudding, right, Ben? Yeah, you can't you can't manage what you can't measure, right? I mean, I know there's been issues around it. Investors too are increasingly looking for that sort of diversity as well, and that's perhaps uh, a pretty important factor too. Companies should know that investors want to see diversity at the top. They sure do, and so institutional investors in particular pay a lot of attention to women's representation at the board table and at the executive officer level, and will withhold votes at annual meetings if they do not see the representation of women on those slates. 
we've got some very good examples of companies doing that. And we haven't even talked about how the impact has been different for women uh, of different backgrounds, right? Yeah, so that that's, again, a great point. So, well, we are really encouraged to see representation of racialized women uh, rise. So in 2022, racialized women held 6.7% of those top level roles, and now they hold 10.3%. That's a really significant increase of 3.6 percentage points in just 12 months. So, you know, companies are being more deliberate in ensuring that they're recruiting and retaining women who identify as women who are racialized, not seeing so much change when it comes to women who identify as Indigenous. Fortunately, they make up just 0.3 percent of those roles. But we know that Canadians who identify as Indigenous comprise 5% of Canada's population. So big gap there. Do you, uh, The numbers can be a bit disconcerting. Do you see any glimmers of hope within them as well? I think the reporting is up. The awareness must be there. Uh, is, that, is, that, is that cause for optimism at all? It is. Uh, so I'm an optimist by nature. And when I started tracking representation of women about 20 years ago, you didn't see more than one in 10 board seats held by women. Now it's three in 10. There were hardly any women who were CEOs, chief financial officers, chief operating officers. Now at that level, you're seeing one in three. So Ben, I'm optimistic uh, as long as we keep, as you said, measuring uh, and encouraging companies and institutional investors are paying close attention. Pamela Jeffrey, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ben. Oh, you must recognize that theme. One of the most popular sitcoms of all time. A show that was famously, Seinfeld was famously about nothing, right? That was always sort of its claim to fame. It was really about not much. Jerry, George, Elaine, Kramer, Newman formed the backbone of the cast. And as it turns out, and this is an interesting one, the plot lines could in fact tell us a lot about basic economic principles. That's right. You can learn about basic economics by watching Seinfeld through that lens. How can that possibly be, do you ask? Well, let's take some of the most famous episodes of the show. Here's one. The example of something called a bad good. That is a product that you can't sell, but you actually need to pay people to get rid of it for you, such as garbage, right? Um, and that's exemplified in the very famous episode where Elaine starts selling only muffin tops and decides to give the bottoms or the stumps to a homeless shelter. Excuse me. I'm Rebecca DeMornay from the homeless shelter. Oh, hi. Are you the ones leaving those muffin pieces behind our shelter? You've been enjoying them? They're just stumps. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're perfectly edible. Oh, so you just assume that the homeless will eat them? They'll eat anything? No, no, no we no, just no. started. I know nice it's a thought. Too. They don't have homes. They don't have jobs. What do they need the top of a muffin for? They're lucky to get the stumps. If the homeless don't like them, the homeless don't have to eat them. The homeless okay? don't like them. Fine. We've never gotten so many complaints. Every two minutes, where's the top of this muffin? Who ate the rest of this? We were just trying to help. Why don't you just drop off some chicken skins and lobster shells? I think they're fine. <laughs> a bad good. That's what it is. You can't get rid of some things you need to pay people to get rid of for you, right? So there's one economic principle as highlighted in that episode. And then there's the episode where Jerry and Elaine go to rent a car. The company, at first, 
has his reservation, but has no vehicles. So that creates an issue. The attendant goes off to speak to her manager, comes back and says, you know what? We have something much smaller than you wanted. It's a Ford Escort and asks Jerry, do you want the insurance? And this is the concept of moral hazard. Have a listen. I'm sorry. My supervisor says there's nothing we can do. Yeah, it looked like you were in a real conversation over there. But we do have a compact if you would like that. Fine. All right. Well, we have a blue Ford Escort for you, Mr. Seinfeld. Would you like insurance? Yeah, you better give me the insurance because I am going to beat the hell out of this. And there you go. The concept of moral hazard. Don't take my word for this. I don't know that much economics. But Linda Ghent does. She's a professor of economics at Eastern Illinois University, and she is co-author of that book called Seinfeld on and Economics. And she joins me now. Linda, a fascinating topic. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's nice to be here. What a fascinating topic. Uh, <laughs> you know, the show about nothing. And I've been watching it again, knowing that we'd be talking. And if you watch it through your lens, it's fascinating because it really does work on so many levels. Did you watch Seinfeld as an economist and, and know right away, ah, there are lessons here that I could teach or did that come after? Oh, no, it came after. You know, honestly, when Seinfeld was in production, the discipline was not such that people were using a lot of popular culture in the classroom. Right. And so it wasn't until the early 2000s that people started using movie clips and song lyrics and uh, some television shows. And so once that happened, my co-author, Alan, and I were sitting around talking and he's the one who suggested this. And I think he was a little more fond of the show than I was at the time, although I think I've my passion equals his now for the show. I always say I think I like the show better now that I see it through the economics lens. Yeah. So tell me a bit about about the economics lens, because I think most of us who watched quite a bit of Seinfeld over the years understood that just about every episode was based on something small, but it was all about decisions, right? It was all about sort of cost benefit, self-interest versus communal. And there was a lot going on in the show that was simple and yet complex in some ways, or at least illustrative of, of the choices we make every day when it comes to economics. Right. I mean, if you go to a textbook, they will define economics as the study of society and how we deal with scarcity. Um, it's very formal, but I much prefer a definition that was written by Alfred Marshall, who was a 19th century economist. And he's the reason we have supply and demand curves. He's the first person to grab those out. But he said that economics is the study of mankind in the business of ordinary life. I love that because to me, economics is all about making decisions and sure you're dealing with scarcity, but scarcity makes you make choices. And so we want to understand how people handle the fact that they can't have everything they want. We have trade-offs all the time with uh, our money and our time. Uh, and so we have to make all of these choices. And so I try to think of this discipline as really trying to help students learn how to, to, to optimize those decisions. When you look at some of the more famous episodes of Seinfeld, and there are chapters in your book, and each one sort of describes an episode, then takes it to theory. Um, what are some of the ones that really stand out when it comes to trying to explain the basics of, of economics? Uh, we, we played a clip from the famous Muffin episode uh, in the intro, obviously. For, for instance, that one, how, what, what does it tell us about basic economic principle? 
Well, I mean, I think the one thing that people don't realize is that not everything is what we would call a good. You know, we talk about goods and services. Um, these are things that are desirable that you would pay others to get. There are also things in our lives that we will pay someone to take away from us. Garbage comes to mind, right? So we pay a weekly or monthly fee, have somebody haul our garbage away, or it's included in your tax bill or something like that. But we're paying somebody to remove that from our lives. And so economists refer to that as sort of the opposite of a good, which is a bad. So it's an economic bad. And in that Muffin Tops episode, it really is the the stem or the, the stump, as Elaine calls it. She believes the only part of the muffin that is desirable is the top. And we need to figure out how to get rid of the other part. And it turns out in that episode, they can't even give them away. So nobody wants them. So if you really want to get rid of them, you're going to have to pay somebody to take them. Right. She's she actually it all backfires, right? To some extent, she tries to give them to a homeless shelter and they get upset because who wants who wants a good that's bad? Right. Exactly. Why are you trying to pawn off this garbage on me? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the same it's a, thing, right? It's a classic episode. I think the um, the worker that comes in, um, Rebecca de Mornay, of course, the you know, same name as the actress, comes in and says, you know, what are you going to give us next? Like lobster shells and chicken skins, right? That's yes. the. Uh, there's another episode that you pointed out, too, which was the car rental one. So in this episode, Jerry uh, reserves a car. He gets there. They have the reservation, but they have no car. And then the, the whole scene ensues from there. That's also an economic principle. I mean, first of all, I will say I love that episode because I think the writing, and this is true about Seinfeld throughout the nine seasons, most of the episodes are so well written. It's kind of amazing to me to compare it to some of the things that I see now. Yeah. But I don't think I appreciated it until till now. But he gets this car and he's very angry because they're going to give him an economy car. Uh, and he had asked for a midsize or even a, a larger car. And so he, when they ask, as all car rental places do, do you want to purchase the optional insurance? He says yes, because he's going to beat up the car. Yeah. And that is a principle that economists would call moral hazard. And moral hazard is simply this idea that we behave differently with insurance than we do when we don't have insurance. So I actually teach a class in health economics. And one of the discussion questions is always asking my students, how would your life be different if you didn't have health insurance? And and some of them would say they would stop playing sports. They would be a lot more careful. They wouldn't take the risks that they take. And that's exactly getting to the point of moral hazard, that when we have insurance to cover us, we can kind of behave any way we want. Uh, and so Jerry already plans to beat up this car, so he wants the insurance there in place. Yeah, we often talk about moral hazard when it comes to sort of big invest investment banks. If they're too big to fail, that becomes a moral hazard, right? Correct. We saw a lot of that during the the financial problems that we had. Um, anytime we bail out a business or a bank or anything like that, we are basically asking for them to take more risks because they can. Excuse me, uh, I think you forgot my bread. Bread, two dollars extra. Two dollars, but. Everyone in front of me got free bread. You want bread? Yes, please. Three dollars! <laughs> what? No soup for you!
Linda Gent is with us, professor of economics at Eastern Illinois University, co-author of a book called Seinfeld and Economics. It's exactly what it sounds like. It takes episodes of Seinfeld and boils them down to how they can teach us about some of the more basic principles of economics and the choices that we make. Um, the soup episode, uh, Linda, is, has to be perhaps the most known of all Seinfeld episodes. And even that, within that one, there are economic principles at play. Oh, absolutely. So you have a, a gentleman that is referred to as a soup Nazi, and there's a reason for that. He has a very specific ordering process with his customers. They have to behave in a certain way, or he will just refuse them service. And apparently, this soup is so good that it makes your knees buckle, according to Jerry. And so you go, you stand in line, you have to come up, you have to order, you step to the side. It's, it's all very regimented. It makes the customers very uncomfortable, makes them nervous. You can see them a little frightened by this guy. And they're really concerned that they're going to get banned from this restaurant. And the fact is that because he has these recipes and his soup seems to be different from everybody else's, this gives him a barrier to entry. And a barrier to entry means that he can be the only guy producing a soup like his. Uh, you could almost consider those recipes to be similar to what we would see in the real world with patents. So he's the only one who can produce the soup of his type that tastes exactly like his. And so he's able to control his customers because he doesn't have competition. What's great is at the end of the episode, through just sort of an accidental gift of an armoire to Kramer, the soup Nazi gives an armoire to Kramer, Kramer gives it to Elaine, Elaine opens it and discovers all of his recipes. Uh, and the minute that happens, his barrier to entry no longer exists. And since it doesn't exist, his, mo his monopoly power goes away. And so at the end of the episode, she basically says, you know, pack it up, you're through. No more soup for you. And I mean, she couldn't just distribute those recipes to all the restaurants in Manhattan. And he no longer will be able to treat his customers that way. It's interesting because that uh, applies to so many things that as consumers we face. You know, why do you pay a premium for certain things, even though the, what you're getting in return may be great, but you do have to um, conform at times with certain things that you think about coveted restaurants and reservations and paying in advance or putting a down payment on your reservation these days to trips to coveted places, having to pay more. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different economic principles built into that idea of no competition and a product that everybody wants. Right. I mean, some people slide money to the maitre d', right? Which sort of a, you're paying a premium for a table that should just be first come first serve, but they're able to extract some values from you because it's exclusive. It's interesting when you look at it that way, that it highlights the fact that although we are often rational economic beings, we're not always rational economic beings, are we? I think, you know, most of the time we're weighing benefits and costs. I often tell my students, if you see somebody doing something and you don't really understand why, you scratch your head and think, why would they do that? You really need to start thinking about what incentives they face, what are the benefits and costs for them? And it may not be the same decision you would make, but that's because perhaps your perceived benefits or costs would be different. 
So I think much of the time we're rational. There are times where we make, you know, some mistakes uh, and we can often, you know, predict that those things are going to happen. One of those is is with, with sunk costs, right? So people often consider costs that have already been incurred and they can't get back when they're making decisions. And economists would say, you know, you shouldn't do that. All, all that should matter is the benefits and costs from this moment forward. And, you know, people hold on to relationships longer because they already spent time with someone. I one time tried to convince my husband that we had to stay overnight at a hotel because we had paid in advance. And he pointed out to me that that was just a sunk cost. So he used my own, uh, my own discipline against me. Wow. Uh, Economic judo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, really, truly. Um, So there are all kinds of ways that people will make mistakes, but economists also recognize that human beings aren't robots. No. One of my favorite episodes is when George refuses to quit his job, even though he's been essentially told he has to get out. He signed this year contract. At one point, they offer him six months salary. He still says no. And that was another interesting one, because most people would just walk away from a job where they weren't wanted. You win, George. We've had it. You leave right now and play now will give you six months pay. That's half of your entire contract. Please, just, 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 just go. See, if I stay the whole year, I get it all. Want to play hardball, huh? Fine. Attention, play now, employees. George Costanza's handicapped bathroom on the 16th floor is now open to all employees and their families. Well played. I'll see you in hell, Costanza. In this case, he's looking at it purely at economics. He's like, I got 12 months. I'm staying here until you make me go. Some of us, I think, would include the cost of staying as being a little bit embarrassed or uncomfortable about being where we're not wanted. George doesn't have any of that, right? So no. George George doesn't really care what people think about him for the most part. I mean, he seems erotic when it comes to the other sex, right? So when it comes to women, but pretty much when it comes to something in, a, in his professional life, he's just George. So he's willing to take the embarrassment to hold on to that job for a year. Because, by the way, that saves him from having to find another one. <laughs> so he is a rational actor that it depends what you're willing to. Uh, it's your cost benefit analysis, right? Correct. Right. So I'm not sure that. Yeah, I'm not sure we could say he's irrational. I think you and I would probably factor in that added cost of embarrassment, but he's not going to do that. Linda Gant, I'm sure your students are always fascinated to be taught economics this way. It's been a real joy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, too. It was great talking with you. I've spent a lot of time, Joe, slating everybody in the company. Backstage, I'm starting fights off everybody. I've ridiculed everyone on the roster. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Yeah, Conor McGregor, maybe not the best person when it comes to offering an apology. It's probably probably no surprise that he he's not much of a not much one for saying sorry. But how about the rest of us? Why is it that when we're young, we're taught pretty early? Like one of the first memories you have of a child, at least in mine, is having done something and then being told by your parents you're going to have to go apologize to so and so because whatever you did, you did something wrong and you need to take responsibility for it, and off you go right? And so you learn at a young age, perhaps, that 
uh, saying sorry is difficult, as Elton John put it, the hardest word, uh, but also that it works, right? So at a young age, you kind of understand that you take responsibility for something, you say sorry, but that you are reluctant to do so. And maybe you haven't, at that age, you don't really dig into why you're reluctant to do so. And then as we get older, we seem to forget that lesson. At least we seem to forget it very quickly. Um, sorry really is a difficult word for many of us to say, isn't it? Uh, I think a lot of us, when something happens, try to find a way to transfer the, the blame to the other person instead of actually apologizing. Sometimes we don't know what we've done wrong, and that makes it difficult to apologize. You think, well, why are they mad? I have no idea why they could be mad. What can I apologize for if I don't know what I'm apologizing for? Or some people just refuse to apologize. It's just part of their DNA, as if apologizing somehow would take them down 50 notches in their own eyes and in the eyes of others. And you think sort of a, the Donald Trump example. And I don't think Donald Trump does a lot of apologizing, for instance. He's just a, you know, the, the, the example of that. But there are many people like that, you know. There are reasons for it. There are psychological reasons for it. Why don't we like to apologize? How can we learn to do it better? Because it can be the most effective word you can ever utter right in some situations well joining us more joining us now with more on that is susan mccarthy she's co-author of sorry 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 the case for good apologies susan thank you for your time oh thank you for having me you know canadians are infamous for saying sorry is almost like punctuation right but even canadians have a hard time really saying sorry why do so many of us have such a hard time apologizing for stuff we just instinctively protect ourselves. And when you say you're sorry, you say that you did or said something wrong or bad or unfortunate, and that's making yourself vulnerable. It's putting yourself a notch down. And we just, we become geniuses when we have to apologize and we start thinking of ways to, to diminish it and say, oh, I'm sorry if that if you took that the wrong way. Yeah. I, I love some of those modern apologies. I'm sorry if you felt offended, which is basically like saying I'm not sorry in the least. Yeah. You don't get to uh, apologize for how the other person feels. You have to apologize for what you yourself said or did. Um, is there, I mean, we don't learn this lesson though, because as I was mentioning, and you've pointed this out, when we're young, we're taught to apologize, and we're also taught how difficult it is. How do we forget those lessons? Well, that's a good question. I think a lot of times parents make the mistake of punishing children for apologies by following an apology with a lecture. And so the children are made to apologize, and then the parent says, we don't hit people. You had to apologize because we don't hit people around here. I know that he was teasing you, but we don't hit people. And so that's a punishment to get that lecture, whereas if the parent can save that lecture for another time and say, that was impressive, you apologized well, and you know what? A lot of grown-ups can't do that, what you just did. Yeah, and I guess that inherent resistance is understandable, but it certainly has some de detrimental impacts. I mean, I, I think I and many, many people that I know have been put in situations where either they don't speak with a member of their own family or they've fallen out with friends simply because we're unable to utter that oh-so-difficult word. Yeah, it's 
It's unfortunate. We're hoping, my co-author Marjorie and Engel and I are, are hoping that we can get more people to realize that if you do apologize, you can fix things, you can make things better, and you can feel good about yourself because it is difficult. Uh, tell me about the motivation for sitting down and writing. You just mentioned the motivation, but what uh, was there? A, was there a moment where you thought we need to write about apologies because somehow, either as a society or somehow, we've forgotten, or maybe we just we never knew how to do it properly. But somehow, this is becoming an increasingly lost art. Yeah, I wrote a, a humor piece some years back, uh, making fun of sorry if apologies. And it was an ephemeral piece hung on, you know, news of the day, and it wasn't expected to last. But all these people kept telling me, oh, I printed it out and I made my mom read it. I made my boyfriend read it, you know, to say why they were still upset after they got a sorry if apology. And Marjorie uh, writes a lot for Jewish publications like The Forward and Tablet, And she writes about apologies and forgiveness and atonement every year in the context of the Jewish high holidays. Right. So she already has a great deal of expertise. Oh, fascinating. I mean, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, the other thing is that I write a lot about animal behavior and animal learning. And I discovered from reading all these different accounts of scientists diligently trying to teach animals this and that, that really the best way to learn something is to see somebody else get taught. Not to be taught yourself, but to see somebody else get taught and go, oh, I could do better than that. And I think that applies to apologies. Yeah. Tell me about the sorry if, because I, it, it's a relatively, well, I guess it's not a relatively new phenomenon. I think it's because we've seen we've seen a lot of high profile people put in situations where they're having to apologize a lot more than maybe they did generations ago. And those apologies come in all different shapes and forms. And some of them fall far short, frankly. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one thing about social media is that we do see other people apologizing badly. And then if we're lucky, they come back with a better apology after they've thought about it. And people have said to them, "Uh, uh-uh, no, no, that wasn't good. And sorry if it's a big one. It just, it just comes out of your mouth so readily. But we say, watch out for the sorry if apology, the sorry but apology, and the sorry you apology. You know, sorry, but you were being so annoying. Wow. Uh, sorry you took that the wrong way. I love that one. That's a great one. <laughs> sorry, sorry you took that the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> That's like anybody starting a sentence with all due respect. You know something bad's coming, right? <laughs> you just, you always know. Um, I, I guess, I mean, this is, there's an art to this, right? I mean, you pointed out in your book, there's, there's an art to how we should approach this. And uh, where does it begin? Um, We ended up with six and a half steps, not all of which are needed for every apology. And what we say is that that it's simple but difficult. And so the first thing is, step number one is you say, I'm sorry, or I apologize. You don't say, I feel bad, or, you know, I regret that, because everybody regrets it. Um, The second thing is you say specifically what it was. You know, I'm sorry for this thing I said. I'm sorry for this thing that I did. You don't say, I'm sorry the way that turned out. Eh, 
Sorry about Tuesday night. Uh, the third thing um, uh, is that you show you understand the impact. You know, you say, I'm sorry I took your car and left you stranded. You understand the impact. You don't make excuses. If you need to explain, you, you can say that. You know, you can say, I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought that was my kid's trike. He has the same model. I wasn't trying to steal your kid's trike. I, re- I genuinely thought that was my kid's trike. Uh, next time I'll look for the streamers on the handlebars. Um, the fifth one is say why it won't happen again, which is like, I'll look for the streamers on the handlebars. And lastly, uh, in some cases, you might want to make reparations. You might want to say, oh, I will pay for the dry cleaning. I will pay to get your couch cleaned. I spilled the wine on it. Six. Naturally, that would be red wine. Susan, you were talking about the six steps. Six and a half steps yes. to a proper Six one. So let's let's start it with with number one, and that's simply saying unequivocally, "I'm sorry." Not "I'm sorry, you." "I'm sorry, if." "I'm sorry, but." But just "I'm sorry." I'm sorry, or I apologize. Simple Step as number that. two is say exactly what you're apologizing for, and this. Uh, goes to something you were mentioning before the break, Ben, where sometimes you're not even sure why you've upset someone. Right. And if you say specifically what you're apologizing for, you know, I'm sorry for, uh, you know, yelling at the dinner table, then the person may come back to you and say, actually, that's not what I'm upset about. I'm oh, no. upset because you spoke to my parents. Right. Right. So then you, it's in some ways by offering that olive branch, you're actually finding out what it is, what the problem is. Yes. And then step number three is show that you understand the impact. And that is, again, you know, the example I gave was, you know, I took your car and left you stranded. Um, And they may say, you know, actually, it wasn't that I had other ways to get home. But you know, my car insurance isn't up to date. And I was really concerned about liability, whatever that gives them a chance to say what they're really feeling. Um, So so say sorry, recognize the impact, say, say sorry, say what you're sorry for, recognize, acknowledge the impact of it, right? Yes, those are the first three steps. The fourth one is only explain if necessary, but don't make excuses. Don't say, I was having a really bad day, and then, you know, I was cut off on my way home from work, and I walk in the door, and you ask me where my shoes are, and I'm not your shoe concierge. Mm. Uh, No excuses. Uh, Number five is um, say why it won't happen again. Say, you know, I'm going to... When I get home, I'm going to take a minute and sit in the car and just breathe and not bring my bad mood into the house. Uh, number six is, again, this may not be relevant in every apology, is, is making reparations. You know, right. I, will, I, will, I, will, I will pay for the dry cleaning kind of thing. Or, and off, or six, offer, <laughs> offer to at least, right? Or offer to at least. Exactly. And six and a half is just to listen and let them have their say. Wow. That's a lot of steps, Susan. <laughs> That's tough. It is. But, but it, but it works, though, right? It works. It does work. And if you just, you know, bump into someone in the subway, you're going to say, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I, you know, I didn't see you there, and I, I'll be more careful. Um, you don't have to say, I'm going to make reparations to you, and this, I understand how this put you. you know, yeah, you just keep it short, short and simple. 
one of the things that happens, and you talked about this earlier, what if you're convinced that you're not wrong, but you know the apology would make everything better? Uh, well, that's interesting because <laughs> even though Marjorie and I are big proponents of apologies, we don't think you should apologize if you don't think you were wrong. But there are situations where, just as you say, an apology will make things go better. And one example that I often come across is if you're managing a team and something you know, bad has happened that came from up above. It wasn't your decision. You didn't make it happen. You couldn't have stopped it, but it it was a bad thing. You might want to apologize to your team and say, guys, I'm really sorry that you didn't deserve that. That wasn't fair. You worked really hard and you nobody recognized your work. Um, and I just want you to know that I'm really sorry and, and that you deserved better. Now, you didn't do anything but you're apologizing because you know these people need an apology. They deserve an apology and no one else is going to give it to them. So in that way, it's a little bit like, you know, if someone, you know, is, is limping and you say what happened and they say, Oh, I sprained my ankle three days ago. And then you say, Oh, I'm sorry. And you don't, you're not saying that because you made their ankle get sprained. You're saying that out of sympathy. Yeah. We say sorry a lot here in Canada. <laughs> I think you may know that. Uh, and we don't say it oh, as an apology. This is, yeah, well, we don't brag about it because we don't use it really as an apology. We use it sort of as a punctuation, like, oh, sorry. Oh, so we, we say sorry a lot. We get, we get mocked for it at times. But I, I don't know whether I think all the lessons that you bring up in the book are as valid for Canadians as anyone else because we do say sorry a lot, but we're not necessarily apologizing and we don't necessarily say it at the right times. We often say it, as you pointed out, in those situations where you maybe bump into someone or you're trying to get out of someone's way or so forth. I guess the hope here is right. that is that is that we we get better at this. Yes, and it, it's good for us to get better at it, and it's good for other people to get better at it. And it's interesting to me that one of the things, ever since we started this, uh, our website, Sorry Watch, about 10 years ago, where all we do is analyze apologies, is people will come to us, sometimes individuals, sometimes, you know, people in the media, and they'll say, here's this apology. Is this a good apology? And they... Oftentimes it's like, you know, this person said a lot of stuff about how bad they feel, and so surely it's a good apology, but I don't like it. And one of the useful things about the six steps is that you can look at it and go, oh, wait a minute. You know, they all they do is talk about how bad they feel, but they don't actually apologize. They don't actually take responsibility. Okay, I see what's wrong with this apology. Susan, I'm going to have to apologize because we've run out of time. But thank you so much for walking us through that tonight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Ben. It's been lovely to be here. When I was young, I knew somebody who practiced their signature all the time for the time when they were older, when they would have to sign autographs. I always admired that kind of confidence because when I was that age, I think I learned to sign, you know, sign something when I was about nine, like we all do. And I have to say, I don't think my signature has improved much since I was doing it with a crayon. It really hasn't. Sometimes I read my own signature and think, what does that say about me?
because it's messy. I mean, there's a few loops. It's kind of kind of a long name, right? Like Ben O apostrophe H A R A hyphen capital B Y R N E. It's it's a bit lengthy, right? But it feels like you could take something of that length and turn it into something really nice. But I never did. I never did. I still look at my signature and think. And, and even sometimes, like when I was living in China, um, and you're signing your name, and it's and it's an anglicized name in in you know Arabic lettering or sorry normal lettering. Um, they would look at it. They would compare the signature to how you normally sign because that's obviously not in Chinese characters. It's different. And sometimes they would send me back because like, this isn't the same signature. I'm like, it's mine. I'm just inconsistent with it. And they were like, well, how could, how could you be that inconsistent with it? I'm like, well, it's just the way I, I, I sign my name. There's help out there for you. If you're like me, uh, Patricia Molina is one of them. She owns a company called Planet of Names, and they do they help you with your signature. They do about a 300 custom signatures a month to teach you how to take your signature and make it something better than it was or is. Now, perhaps it's so you can go sign autographs. Uh, Priscilla is in LA, so possibly people there would like to know how to sign their name in a nicer or at least more original and inventive way. Uh, or for the rest of us, it's just because maybe you don't like what your signature says about you in general, especially as you get a bit older. And uh, Priscilla Molina joins us now from L.A. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, thank you so much, Ben, for having me. So tell me about this. This is such a interesting business because you're, you're right. I, I know lots of people who don't like their signatures. They all look like, you know, you sort of figured it out when you were about nine or ten and never updated it. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's uh, the, a lot of the comments I do receive from people who are looking to improve their signature. So where where does one begin? I mean, what are some of the, the fatal flaws that we all make when it comes to those signatures? Um, so some of those flaws that is reoccurring um, between a lot of people who are looking to upgrade their signature tend to find it a bit too simple or sloppy. Um, oftentimes that People are just tired how they sign their current name, and so they just want, like, a new, fresh look. Also, handwriting uh, nowadays isn't being taught, and the person's signature doesn't always, like, suit them or, you know, so they kind of uh, see it as somewhat of a self-portrait of themselves, but uh, used with, like, actual lettering instead of a, a photograph. Right. So, so how do you help? So how do you... Where do you begin uh, when when someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm the CEO of a company. My signature looks like it did when it was ele- when I was 11. I would like to change this. Where do you begin? Uh, so they would commission um, a signature package, and depending on like which signature package they commission, um, oftentimes what will happen is that they'll fill out a form um, with what they want me to know. Perhaps uh, their signature looks like it's either chicken scratch or it's, there's a lot of flourishes or it's very compact and then they'd go on to telling me what they want uh, it to look like moving forward and so I would then create different designs um, based on what they what they want uh, what they want me to know about them um, and other smaller details like that and from there, uh, they can choose to finalize a signature design or continue to modify it until it's the one that they want to use, hopefully for the rest of their life. And from there, um, they'll receive a still tutorial, so a step-by-step tutorial on how to replicate it, as well as stencils so that they can practice writing it over and over again. 
So in some ways, that person I knew when I was young who just practiced and practiced and practiced, that's the right way to do it. You need to teach yourself how to do it in a different way and then, and then just practice until you get it right. Essentially, yes. And um, it's not that time consuming uh, either. And sometimes it can be, uh, if, there's a, if you have a signature that you enjoy writing, it's kind of fun to just rewrite your signature over and over again. It's kind of how when some people doodle. And so I can see how your friend enjoyed doing that because I, I, I was definitely one of those people who practiced going over my signature. And when I became to fall in love with my own, I kind of just kept practicing it because it was, it was really fun. Well, it makes perfect sense that you would have, Priscilla. It makes it makes sense <laughs> given what you do that you would that you would have a great. I'm, I'm sure you have a great signature, right? It's a great. It's nice, simple, bit of flourish. Yes, but one of uh, so <laughs> one of the things that um, recently that since now I'm creating different signatures for all sorts of people, um, it allows me to have a creative pursuit on my own current signature. So now I'm always finding new ways to design my signature. And so that's the only fallback, I suppose, when it comes to designing signatures. You want to, you want to change your own all the time. <laughs> there must be some challenges, though, because, you know, for instance, I have my passport is signed in the chicken scratch way that I normally do it. The backs of your credit cards are signed. When you change your, your signature, you kind of have to watch out, right? Because um, you're, I mean, less now than before, clearly. But your signature is a form of ID for you as well. Yeah, definitely. And so um, I, I do get asked, you know, in the case of like downright fraudulence, um, signature, like you said, is like the one of like a number of sources of evidence and they're not really nearly verified as much as like identities, like the signature that is on um, our ID. It's not as much as verified as like the ID itself or a fingerprint or even our social security routing number. Um, but typically the signature itself, like its primary role is to just verify like an agreement um, that of, you know, a particular individual that, you know, so that. Yeah, I can go into like all the legal aspects. All the of it, details but, of it. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. So, so it's not it's not as important. Perhaps I was re- re- retelling a story. I, I used to when I was stationed in Beijing. I was also responsible for the bank account, and the bank account had been set up. So the first time I went in, I signed my name, and of course in Beijing they used you know the bank tellers used Chinese characters to sign their name, and mine was you know was was it was in English, and. Um, and when they looked at my signature, they used to make me, they used to laugh at me because my signature would change every time I would come in and they'd think, you know, you're driving us and you're driving us nuts with this because can't you just sign your name the same mm-hmm. way twice? I'd be like, well, you know, it's a long name. So, it, you know, if the pen slips or whatever, you know, it just looks different. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was, that was part of where this all came from. So tell me a bit about what, what people, I mean, do people come in and also say they want to do something? Is it always quite formal or do they want it to look more artistic? I suppose it all depends on who they are. Yeah, definitely. Um, And that's something that I pride myself on is to, I guess, manipulate a style so that it can be a different style than just, you know, a a professional one, but that is an option. So um, I offer different options of style and legibility as well as uh, if they prefer, if they have like rounder um, and curvier stripes compared to like long and really sharp strides in their in their writing um, so it's not uh, I do receive a lot of commissions for like dramatic signatures and those are oftentimes illegible and they're just very very bold and out there um, 
and can look like an album cover to like a, a rock or metal album cover. It, it, that's kind of what it gives right. off that impression. <laughs> right, and, and you must have clients. Yeah, you must have people who actually have to sign autographs, so they want they want their their signature to look more impressive. Yeah, and there will be elements to that um, autograph that will include, if like for sports um, figures, uh, they'll want their jersey number um, with that signature incorporated in that signature. Sometimes um, artists or even authors want a little small image included, or just a little, you know, a symbol that represents them in some way. I know you can't give. I know you can't give away the state secrets here, but you must. That's the kind of people that come to you too, right? Yes, definitely, definitely, and I'm I'm really happy to work with everyone that comes my way. Yeah, and if you and it's no barrier if your handwriting, my handwriting. Part of the reason why my signature isn't very nice is my handwriting isn't very nice. That's not a barrier. No, it's not. No, it's not. As long as you are open to just taking a few minutes out of your day, maybe for a few days. Um, honestly, it'll come to you as natural as as your current penmanship is. Um, that won't say that your entire penmanship, because um, I feel like your penmanship is entirely different than your signature, but your signature will literally just show natural after just a few days. Yeah, I'm one of the few people out there who when you have to auto-sign something, the computer does it for you. I'm like, that looks nice. That looks good. <laughs> I, I, I guess it's not, it's not a lost art though, right? I mean, it's still one of those things that we do. I know a lot of more of what we do now doesn't involve us actually having to manually sign things, mm-hmm. but it's still, it's still, you, you do it enough. You do it enough in your lifetime for it to make a difference. Yes, definitely. And even uh, some of the few times or some of that we do use our signature on um, there, they call for extremely special moments in our life. Um, signing a mortgage or a loan, um, a birth certificate, um, and, you know, a wedding certificate as well. And so sometimes some people will like to go back and just kind of, you know, uh, ponder on the past and look back in the past and a part of them um, is there as well. Uh, it's already too late for me. For so lots, of, <laughs> lots of things have already been signed in that, in that chicken scratch uh, in my own way. Uh, Priscilla Molina, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's, uh, I, who knew? It's, it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. 